0: We are going to continue in our worship together this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you want to go ahead and make your way to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. I really wanted to say James and start all over again, but we're not going to be able to do it. Acts chapter 17. If you need a Bible, you can grab one from one of the tray tables. You can use that this morning. And if you don't actually own a Bible, grab one of those and use it and then keep it. Uh, Let it be our gift to you this morning. But this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, and I will explain more of why we're there in just a moment, but let me first kind of get you up to date with where we are in the story on Acts chapter 17, and then try to make sense of why we're there this morning. Acts chapter 17 is chronicling part of the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and the expansion of the gospel and the establishment of the church, and when the chapter starts, we find Paul and his partner Silas preaching in the, in the land of Thessalonica, and they're reasoning with devout Jews and, and devout Greeks. And you'll find as you read through Acts chapter 17 in the beginning, many people believed the apostle Paul and the message that he was preaching and came to faith in Christ. But there, there were a number of Jews. And, and Luke, who writes the gospel, I mean, Luke, who writes Acts, records that these Jews were jealous of Paul and, and Silas. And out of their jealousy and their frustration and their anger, they get mad and they end up having to run Paul and Silas out of town. So Paul and Silas are preaching. God's moving, but They run Paul out of town, and so Paul and Silas find themselves in chapter 17, then from Thessalonica in Berea. You can see that in verse 10, and Paul and Silas continue to do what they always do. They reason and they teach, and you find in particular with the Bereans there, they receive the word with eagerness, and they examine God's word daily to make sure that what Paul was saying was true, and many of them, including Greeks, men and women alike in high positions of society, believed and gave their life To Jesus Christ. But those pesky Thessalonians, that group that had become jealous of Paul and Silas heard that they were now in Berea, that they were preaching the gospel, that people were coming to faith in Christ. They came down to Berea to try to get Paul and Silas. And so, again, the the people of God, recognizing what's happening, they urge Paul to get out of town. And you find that there in the middle of chapter 17. In verse 14, the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. Silas and Timothy, they had to stick around for a little while, but not for super long. Paul would get them later. But in verse 15, those who conducted Paul, when he got to sea, they brought him as far as Athens. So Paul lands in the middle of the cultural universe of his day. I mean, Athens was a glorious and beautiful and sparkling place. It was everything you imagine it was, it was the center of politics, it was the center of education. It was the center of philosophy. It was the center of culture. It was the center of sports. It's where the Olympics came to be. It was the middle of the cultural universe in that day. And Paul lands there and he does what Paul always does. You can begin to read. He began to reason with the Jews in the synagogue and began to reason even with Greeks in the marketplace. And as he began to teach and as he began to preach, you'll find as you read, many of them were curious of what Paul was saying. So you get verse 19 where the people who were curious about what Paul was saying as he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection took him and brought him to the Areopagus. They took him and brought him to Mars Hill. They took him and brought him to the place where all of the greatest ideas, the philosophies, the arguments of the day would have been communicated, would have been listened to, and would have been debated. It's where the thinkers and the speakers and the philosophers of the day went to give, to listen to, to receive, reject, or accept varying ideas of the time. So now Paul has made his way there. And in verse 22, you get the beginning of what is probably the most famous of all of the Apostle Paul's addresses in the book of Acts. If you're familiar at all, with the Apostle Paul and his traveling work throughout the the known world at that time, preaching the gospel, you probably have heard someone at some point talk about Paul at Mars Hill. And this morning, I want us to take the time that we have to, to do something. There's two things I want us to do this morning. One, I want us to see a particular aspect of the message that Paul preached at Mars Hill. But then I want to take the majority of our time to spend our time looking at what motivated Paul in giving the message. So I wanna look at one thing in the message itself, but I wanna spend the majority of our time looking at the man. Looking at what was animating and motivating and moving and driving Paul in what he was doing. So the first thing I want us to do though, I want us to notice one thing about the message itself. And the one thing I want us to notice about the message itself this morning is that when Paul began to speak at Mars Hill, he began to speak to those who had gathered Paul started where they were. When Paul gave his message, when he began to proclaim, Paul started where they were. Look at verse 22, and I'll explain to you why this matters. Verse 22, Paul is standing in the midst of the Areopagus, and he says this, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. When Paul began to speak, he started where they were. Paul recognized the sincerity of their heart, their search, and their struggle. In one sense, when Paul saw all that they had worshiped and all that was around him, he saw it as an illustration to some degree of these people's struggle to figure life out, to figure out how to make life work a struggle itself for, for God himself. You see, when Paul would arrive to town he, with the Jews, he had a common sense of the authority of God's word. They had a common starting place, so you always find Paul reasoning with the Jews and the devout believers from the Bible, but with the Athenians at Mars Hill, Paul didn't have that same common ground in a sense of the authority of God's word, so Paul started right where they were. He acknowledged their search, he acknowledged their question, he acknowledged their struggle, and then he directed them to the one true God and his son. And you can see in verse 31, he directed them to the one that God has appointed and given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, I point this out for one reason. Here's why, when it comes to what Paul said, I just want us to see that when he began to speak, he started where they were. Next week, we're going to begin a new sermon series as part of a citywide campaign called Explore God. You've probably seen billboards around town at some point. You may have heard radio spots at some point. Maybe when you're on the web browsing, ads have popped up when you've been on Facebook or something. There there is a campaign that has been underway that some 200-plus churches are a part of, and it's called Explore God. And it's going to be a little bit different than the normal way we go about things here. Normally, if you've been here for any period of time, we like to take one book of the Bible— and work our way through it thought by thought from the beginning to the end, trying to discern by God's grace what the author originally meant for God's people and how God applies it to our life today. That's normally what we do. But the Explore God campaign, much like Paul's address to the people of Mars Hill, it starts where people are. The Explore God campaign is built around seven fundamental questions that your family members, your friends, your coworkers, your roommates, and maybe even some of you in here are still asking and struggling with. Questions like Does life have a purpose? Is there a God? Why does God allow pain and suffering? Is Christianity too narrow for our culture? Is Jesus really God? Is the Bible reliable? Can I know God personally? The Explore God initiative is seeking to start, in some sense, where people are and take them to the one true God and the good news about his son. So we're going to actually begin that campaign next week with a number of churches around town. And here's what I want you to know. Our prayer as we do this, even though it's a little bit different than what we normally do, our prayer is not only that God would use the work of the churches around proclaiming his good news and engaging these questions in a way that would bring many people to saving faith in Christ. The other hope and prayer that we have is that you, as God's people, would be equipped and would be better encouraged to be able to answer these questions when you face them from people where you are. That you'll be able to go from the Bible and take people asking these questions and take them to the one true God and the good news of his son. So we're not just answering the questions with the prayer and the hope that those who have been struggling and asking them are here and we can engage with that. We're equipping you in it as well. So that's the one thing about the message. That's kind of where we're going Now, though, I want to spend the majority of our time on something else. We're going to stay in Acts chapter 17. And if Paul began his message on Mars Hill by starting where those who were listening to him were starting, I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at where Paul was starting in some sense. I want us looking at at what was animating Paul. What moved Paul Into saying what he was saying and doing what he was doing. What was motivating him? What was driving him? Because here's the thing: we can read the missionary journeys, we can read all the messages, we can talk about them and teach them and look at how Paul did what he did and try to pattern our our proclamation after what Paul did, and that's good and right and great, and there are fantastic strategies, there are fantastic campaigns, there are great books all about these kinds of things. But If we're not being animated, if we're not being moved, if we're not being driven by what was driving Paul, all the books, all the strategies, all the citywide campaigns, they might excite us for a season, but it won't last. It won't last. There was something essential driving Paul and doing what he was doing. And it wasn't just driving Paul. It wasn't just animating Paul. It's been animating and driving and motivating God's people since the very beginning. It's been animating men like Ignatius. Ignatius was traveling to the place where he was going to be fed to the lions, and he was doing it, it said cheerfully, and this is what he said, Now I begin to actually be a disciple of my master, Jesus. Whatever was animating Paul as he he stood on top of Mars Hill and began to engage the Inthidians with the gospel was animating Ignatius as he was on his way to be fed to lions. It was the same thing animating Polycarp, a man who had served Christ for years who was brought before the Roman tribunal and asked to deny Christ that he might spare his life and looking at those asking him to deny Christ, he said, I have served my king for 86 years and he's never offended me in anything. How can I then insult my king now? And the same thing animating him and moving him and driving and motivating Polycarp is the same thing that was driving the great missionaries of old, like Latimer, who was standing on the wood of his own funeral pyre as it was being lit. And he looked at another brother standing next to him, about to be burned to death. And he says, Take courage. This day we will light such a candle that by God's grace it shall never be put out. There's something moving them in this and animating them in this. There's something motivating them in this. It's the same thing that motivated men and women like Henry Martin, You've probably never heard of Henry Martin. I had never heard of Henry Martin before until I started reading this particular biography of great missionaries of old that a friend gave me. Henry Martin graduated from Cambridge, having received the highest honors ever possible from a graduate in the 1800s at the time. He had every single opportunity in front of him for his chosen profession opened up wide for him, and he chose at graduation to go and to give his life to preaching the gospel to what was then an unreached and unnamed people group. And Martin when he set out to go to this land, got where he had intended to go, and in his journal, he wrote this, I would be willing to be torn into pieces if I could only hear the sobs of repentance, if I could only see the eyes of faith directed to the Redeemer. There, there's something besides a good strategy that motivates someone like Henry Martin to go and do what he was doing the way he was doing it with the confidence that he was doing it. There, were, there was something animating men like Ignatius and, and Polycarp and, and Latimer and the apostle Paul. What, what was animating them? What was moving them? What was motivating them? That's, that's what I want to understand. That's what I want to be marked by and, and motivating all of them, moving all of them in this was, was one thing, one thing. One thing the Puritans used to write about all the time that we, we seem to have left out. Zeal. All of them were moved by zeal. Zeal in particular for the glory of God and the souls of men. Zeal for the glory of God and zeal for the souls of men. Richard Baxter was writing, and Richard Baxter said, if we make the Bible our rule of faith and practice, we can never turn away from the subject of zeal. We must look it directly in the face. As he continued to write about this virtue of zeal, and the Puritans wrote about the virtue of zeal all the time, Baxter was writing about people who who possessed this virtue of zeal, and he said, whether they live or whether they die, whether they're healthy or whether they're sick, whether they're rich or whether they're poor, whether they please man or whether they give offense, whether they're thought of as wise or whether they're thought of as foolish, whether they are accused or whether they are praised, whether they get honor or whether they get shame, for all of this, a zealous person cares nothing at all because they have a zeal for one thing, the advancement of the glory of God. The Apostle Paul, standing atop Mars Hill in in Athens, like so many of the great saints of old, was zealous for one thing, and that was the glory of God. And that zeal produced in him a zeal for the souls of men. And so with the time left that we've got this morning, I want us to consider the Apostle Paul's zeal for the glory of God and the Apostle Paul's zeal for the souls of men. And as we do, I want you to ask if, it's th- if the same is true of you. If you see in yourself any of the same zeal that you see in the Apostle Paul, we'll start with his zeal for the glory of God. Look at verse 16. So we stay in Acts chapter 17. Look at verse 16. It says that while Paul was waiting for Timothy and Silas in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Now, that word provoked is a word we use all the time in our common language, don't we? You've used provoked probably at some point this week, if not even this morning or today at some point. So as I was reading it, I was trying to think, am I thinking about the same thing that Luke, who wrote Acts, was thinking about when he wrote about Paul? When I think about provoked and the emotion that goes with provoked, is that the same thing that Luke meant? So I went and looked the word up. Now, the word that Luke used there for the word that we translate provoked is gives us a particular English word that I had never heard of in my life, paroxysm. You're supposed to know that. You Scrabble players probably know that. I had to go look it up. I looked it up and this is what it said. It's a word that denotes violent action or emotion. So Paul's spirit somehow has this sense of violent action or emotion. Well, that didn't help me too much. So I saw that the word was actually translated in the Hebrew version of the Bible, in the Septuagint, same word used in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it gives us more of a picture, not so much a definition. This word is used and translated as something that is waxed hot. That helped me a little bit more. Waxed hot. Still trying to figure out exactly if I was thinking the same thing that Luke intended. I went to John Calvin can usually get help from Calvin on these things. And in his commentary on Acts 17, Calvin was tremendously helpful. He said this, Luke does not just say that Paul was indignant or offended. Now, when I read Acts 17, when I've taught Acts 17, when I've thought about this part of Acts 17, when I think about Paul being provoked in Athens by the idolatry around him, I probably put it in the offense or indignation category. That's how I use that provoked. He's indignant about what's happening, or he's offended by it. But Calvin said it's not just that. This is helpful. Luke describes for us Paul's unusual heat of righteous anger. Calvin took it both, the Old Testament, the Hebrew version, and the Greek version, and put them together. Unusual heat of righteous anger. And this wetted his zeal. This wet his zeal like someone would wet a stone before he sharpens it. This unusual heat of righteous anger wet the zeal of the Apostle Paul for the glory of God. Why? Why did he get so waxed hot? Why was he so provoked? Well, he looked around and saw a glorious city, a beautiful city teeming with men and women and children and families, and he saw it overflowing with idols. He saw those men. He saw those women. He saw those families giving their lives over, giving glory to something giving their hope, their faith, their trust, their commitment for today and tomorrow, two things that don't deserve it. Two things that don't deserve it. You see, these Athenians, when Paul looked around, he saw them spending their time and spending their money and spending their energy making idols and buying idols and attending to the idols. And, he, and this is for another sermon another time, but you can go read it this week. When he's preaching to the Athenians on Mars Hill and he talks about the one true God not being one that is made or served by hands, there, was actually, there were actually idols in Athens at the time that required part of your service as to do things like wiping out the dirt and the dust between their toes and, and serving the actual physical idol. And he looks around and he sees people giving their hope and giving their trust and giving their faith over to these things that they have to wipe the dirt out from between the toes of. Giving glory to things that don't deserve it. And it ate him up. His spirit was provoked. See, anytime you give glory to something that doesn't deserve it, do you know why it ate him up so much? Whenever you give glory to something that doesn't deserve it, you rob it from the one who does. This provoked Paul's spirit because Paul saw God not getting that which is rightly his. What he saw wet his zeal for the glory of God. Paul was a man consumed with the glory of God. Paul was a man zealous for the glory of God. Why? Paul believed the glory of God was ultimately the goal of all things. You couldn't find anything. You couldn't come to Paul with anything that Paul would not argue the glory of God was not the end of. It's why he wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. There isn't some subset in your life when you wake up that the end of which is not meant to be the glory of God. Wherever you labor, wherever you toil, whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, regardless of what it is and how it happens, it's meant to be done in your life for the glory of God. Paul was consumed with the glory of God because he believed ultimately that the glory of God was the end of all things. So Paul's work, Paul's missionary work, Paul's evangelism, if you want to talk about that, was ultimately compelled not simply with just people coming to know Christ, but ultimately it was compelled by the glory of God. This is what he told that same church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 4, 15. All that I'm doing, all that I'm preaching, it's all for your sake, Paul said, so that that as the grace of God extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So I'm preaching that you might come to know Christ, that you might come to know the goodness of God. I'm preaching that your life might be transformed by the grace of God, but behind all of that, my ultimate motivation is simply the more people that come to know him, the more glory God gets. Even your salvation results in God receiving more praise, more thanks, and more glory. It's the ultimate end even of that. There wasn't anything you could bring to Paul that Paul would not argue rightly, was not meant to end in the glory of God. Even eternity itself. Even where everything is actually headed, ultimately the end of it all to Paul was the glory of God. Philippians 2, Paul said this to the church there in Philippi 2.19, God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Why? So that that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why, Paul? to the glory of God the Father. All of it, it's all headed in one direction to one place, that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not just to that, but that ultimately brings God glory. It's all headed to the glory of God. Paul was zealous for God's glory because Paul was consumed with the reality that all things ultimately end in the glory of God the glory of God was the goal of all things. Why is the glory of God meant to be the goal of all things then? Well, Paul actually believed that God is the only one truly, rightfully deserving of glory. You you can't believe that the glory of God is the end of all things in life if you do not believe that God is ultimately the only one who rightly deserves the glory. Paul believed that God was the one alone who deserves all glory. Why did did he believe that? Why was his spirit provoked, waxed hot when he saw all of the idolatry in Athens, when he saw all of the people giving their hope and their affection and their faith over to things that didn't rightly deserve it? Why should our spirits be provoked in the same way when we see that same reality played out in our own life, in the lives of those around us? Well, Paul told the church in Rome in Romans eleven thirty six, 36, because it's from him and through him and to him are all things. To him alone be glory forever. Why is he the only one that deserves all the glory? Because he is the central reality in all of the universe. All things are from him, all things are heading to him, and all things all things rightly bring him glory glory to him alone be glory forever and so with his spirit provoked waxed hot because he's zealous for the glory of God when he looks around and he finds this opportunity being brought to him to stand on top of Mars Hill when, when Paul begins to address the Athenians on Mars Hill what does he take them to what does he make much of what does he proclaim He meets them where they are. He recognizes their questions. He recognizes their struggle. He uses some of their own authors. Sure, he does all of that, but to what end? He takes them to the glory of God. Verse 24, he proclaims to them the glory of the one true creator of the universe. Verse 25, he proclaims to them the glory of the only sustainer of life. Verses 26 and 27, he takes him to the glory of the one true ordainer of all things in life. In verses 28 and 29, he takes him to the glory of the one true father of all mankind. In verses 30 and 31, he takes him to the glory of the one true and rightful savior and judge of the world to whom everyone must give an account. Paul was zealous for the glory of God because from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And their idolatry and their misplaced ideas and their empty philosophies didn't just anger Paul because they were wrong. Paul was waxed hot because they were robbing God of his glory. And Paul wanted God to get the glory that he rightly deserves. Paul was eaten up with zeal. Zeal for the glory of God. It's the same zeal for God's glory. It's it's meant to mark God's people today as well. So as we listen to this, as we go through this, you're, you're meant to ask yourself, to wrestle with yourself, to be honest with yourself even this week and ask God, the Holy Spirit, to show you in your own heart. Are you marked in any way by this same zeal for the glory of God? Does the zeal for the glory of God in your life and through your life consume you at all? Zeal. Right zeal for the glory of God, it does something. It cultivates in you a zeal for the souls of men, women, and children around you. It doesn't just terminate on the glory of God. Remember, the end of that is transformation. Zeal for the glory of God will cultivate in your heart a zeal for the souls of the people around you. One commentator, Kent Hughes, great pastor, Wheaton, Illinois. And writing about Acts 17, he said every idol that Paul saw when he looked around demonstrated for him the Athenians' hunger for God, but it testified to their spiritual bankruptcy, their ignorance of the true God. Paul felt a desperate concern for the spiritual need before his eyes. So verse 16, Paul gets there, his spirit is provoked because he looks around and he sees whole family units, people, thousands of people giving their hope and their faith and their trust over to empty idols, robbing God of his glory. But his zeal for the glory of God has cultivated in him a zeal for these people. So in verse 17, that first word is really important. It says, so... Because he saw God not getting his glory and the rampant idolatry around him and people giving themselves over to things that will ultimately lead them to nothing but destruction, so Paul reasoned in the synagogue and in the marketplaces, proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul goes with those who invite him to Mars Hill and takes them and preaches to them and proclaims to them the glory of God and the one that God has appointed to come and judge who's raised from the dead. Because zeal for the glory of God has eaten up Paul's heart and cultivated in him a zeal for the souls of men, women, and children around him, Paul looks at what's happening and he can't do anything but engage them with the gospel. He sees entire families giving themselves over to things that will do nothing but lead them to destruction, giving hope and faith and Time and energy and money and effort to things that will leave them separated from God for all of eternity. Zeal that God get what's rightfully His has produced in Him a zeal that people come to know the goodness of the glory of God. So Paul can't do anything but begin to engage them with the gospel. See, zeal for the souls of men, evangelism, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't come from books. Books are helpful. Programs are helpful. Campaigns like Explore God, they're helpful. They all have their right time and their right place. But evangelism comes from having a zeal for the glory of God in your heart that cultivates in you a zeal for men and women and children and families around you to come to know the goodness of the one true God through his son, to see their lives transformed. That comes from from having a zeal, looking around and, and going, you're missing it. There's so much more. There's a glory and a goodness that, you, that you've never seen. Your spirit is provoked because God is not only not getting what he rightfully deserves, but you're watching people run themselves to destruction. The only thing that makes any kind of evangelistic effort last or work or maintain or be sustained is a Zeal. A zeal for the glory of God that alone will produce in you a zeal for the souls of men, women, and children around you. That's where it comes from. See, to be, to be provoked in spirit like the Apostle Paul, to be zealous like the Apostle Paul, is to see and to know the beauty and the glory of God through his Son for yourself. And to look around and see that not only is God not getting that which is rightly his, but people are pursuing a counterfeit reality that will lead to their destruction. That's what it is to be provoked in spirit. Paul was zealous. Zealous for the glory of God. Zeal for the glory of God will always lead to being zealous for the souls of others around you. Take some time this week to consider the zeal of your own heart. Ask yourself, is your spirit provoked? Is it provoked at all? When you look around, maybe and you look around at your own life, you look around at the lives of those around you, you look around at the place where God has, has put us and you see God not being given that which he rightfully deserves and people chasing things that will ultimately lead them to nothing but eternal damnation and destruction. Is there any, any zeal at all? Is anything provoked? See, there was something that I was missing about zeal. I'll be honest with you, I haven't given a a tremendous amount of time in my Christian life to studying the virtue of zeal. And as I was considering it more for this week and reading about it, no one has written more about zeal than the Puritans. They loved zeal. They considered it to rob some of the Catholic church language as a cardinal virtue. It should be one of the top virtues that mark God's people. And and I've had a love affair for the last year and a half with a particular Puritan named J.C. Ryle. And Ryle probably was the most prolific writer on Christian zeal. And Ryle said something about zeal that I had missed. and It was obvious if you just think about it, but I had never really understood it. Zeal for the glory of God rightly cultivates in your heart. Zeal for the souls of those around you, so much so that seeing them come to faith in Christ not only transforms their life, but results in more glory to God because all things are shaped and headed towards the end of God receiving more glory. But guess what? Christian zeal worked out in your life also benefits the church. I had missed it. I never really thought about it. It seems so obvious, but Christian zeal working itself out in your life not only not only is for the good of those whose souls have never tasted and known that God is good, but it's good for your brothers and sisters in Christ too. Listen to this. Listen to Ryle. He's so much better at this than I am. J.C. Ryle said nothing is more useful to those who profess to be Christians than to actually see a real live Christian. You didn't hear me. I right, said so. nothing is more useful to those who profess to be Christians than to see a real-life Christian. And Raoul defines a real-life Christian as one who is zealous for the glory of God. These zealous Christians, these real-life Christians, those around them might speak reproachfully of them, they might criticize them, might nitpick your conduct, they may look at him suspiciously, they may not understand him any more than men understand a new phenomenon in the heavens when it appears. But by degrees so slight, has to be virtually imperceptible. A zealous man does them good. A zealous man opens the eyes of the church. He makes them feel their own indifference. He makes their own great darkness visible. I love this. He compels them to think, whether they like it or not, what in the world are we doing? It may be a sad truth that one sinner destroys many good people, but it's a blessed reality that one zealous Christian can do so much good for God's people. Yes, one zealous man or woman in a congregation may be God's most carried blessing to the church. Let everyone who professes to be a Christian beware then of suppressing zeal. And I want to say this real quick because I'm going to read his warning. When we talk about zeal, and I know this is true of me, so I'm hoping maybe it's true of some of you, but it's true of me. Anytime I've ever heard anyone talk about zeal, I've always put zeal in the category of what we would call personality. He's just more zealous than I am, which I meant probably more outspoken, louder, angrier usually. But I had a particular picture of what zeal was. But the reality of it is, when you spend time looking at zeal as the Bible unpacks it and you look at what it is to be zealous for the glory of God and allow zeal for the glory of God to cultivate in you a zeal for the souls of men, you begin to realize that zeal has nothing to do with personality. Zeal is for the introspective people. Zeal is for the extroverts because what you're zealous for is not to be heard. You're zealous for God to be glorified and God will use you the way he has made you with the gifts that he has given you to see that he gets glory and that people come to know him as their Lord, their Savior, their King. He'll use you. Don't hear zeal in this sermon and think you've got to work up some kind of fervor. You've got to yell as loud as I yell when I'm up here. You've got to be animated. You've got to sweat. you got to do all. It's not that. It's not that at all. Zeal is being consumed with the desire that God get that which is rightly his. And because of that, that men, women, and children around you come to know him for who he truly is. So Raul says, beware of suppressing it. Beware of throwing cold water on zealous souls whenever you meet them. Beware of nipping in the bud this precious gift when it first shoots up. If you're a parent, beware of suppressing it in your children. If you're a husband, beware of stopping it in your wife. If you're a brother, beware of restraining it in your sisters. If you're a minister, beware of restraining it in the members of your congregation. It's a shoot of heaven's own planting. Beware of crushing it for the sake of Christ and the glory of God. And he'd go on to say later something that has stuck with me since the first time I read it, and I know it's true. He said, there is little danger, little danger, of there ever being too much zeal for the glory of God in the church. There is little danger of there ever being too much genuine zeal for the glory of God in the church, but there is great danger in there being little to none at all. See, so here's the reality. I'm one who waxes and wanes in zeal. Not an attitude, not an, I'm not, again, it's not personality. In heart, I'm one who's prone to waxing and waning in zeal for the glory of God and for the souls of men and women and children around me. And if you take any amount of time this morning or in the days to come to ask yourself, the zeal that marks the apostle Paul, the zeal that marks the men and women of great of old, the saints of old, is it all resident in me? Can I, can I see it in me? And you recognize, you know, sometimes yes, sometimes no, or, or maybe not. Here's the thing, I can't push a button to make it happen. I can't say something to flip a switch right now to turn it on for you. I can't do something here to make sure that when you walk out of here, you're all of a sudden renewed in zeal for the glory of God and the souls of men because of something that I did. It doesn't happen that way. So when you recognize that this zeal is is not resident in your heart, that your your, your heart is not marked by this kind of zeal for the glory of God that is not producing in you this zeal for the souls of men, what do you do? I mean, that's the million-dollar question. What do you do? You ask God to show you his glory. So God, make my heart insatiable. Like Moses, God, show me your glory. God, I want my heart to be zealous for your glory in all things. Make me insatiable for your glory. Make me addicted to your glory. Let nothing else satisfy my heart. Make my heart fire with zeal for you as you worship him day in and day out, as you read his word, use his word to nurture in you a desire to see his glory. Show me your glory. Remember, you're not reading to simply gain information. You're reading to commune and to worship and to be with him. Show me your glory. Nurture this desire for his glory on a daily basis through his word. Ask him to show you. But I'll say this. Nothing has been more helpful for me Helpful for the state of my heart. Helpful for the cultivation of of zeal for the glory of God and, and in that producing zeal for the souls of men and women around me than actually setting my heart on the zeal of Jesus. Considering the zeal of Jesus. If there was ever one zealous for the glory of God and zealous for the souls of men, it was Christ The psalmist said in Psalm 69 when the Redeemer would come that zeal for his father's house, zeal for his father's glory, zeal for his father's name would consume him. Isaiah said in Isaiah 59 that when the one promised would come, he would cloak himself. He would wear like a cloak zeal. If there was ever someone full of zeal for the glory of God and the souls of men, it was Jesus it was zeal for God's glory and zeal for your good that moved him, that motivated him, that drove him to be your substitute, that drove him to sacrifice in your place for your sin, that moves him to continue to be your shepherd. Zeal for his Father's glory and zeal for our joy characterized his whole life. It sustained him through the horrors of crucifixion. Listen, consider the zeal of Christ in the gospel until it ignites your heart, until your spirit begins to get provoked. I mean, let God have no rest until you consider the zeal of the one who died in your place for your sins, until it provokes your own spirit for the glory of God. Consider where you were. Consider how much like the Athenians you were spending yourself on things that would only ultimately destroy you, empty hopes and vain pursuits and consider the zeal of Christ and coming to this earth and living a life that would accomplish for you a righteousness that would justify you before his father. Consider the zeal of Christ when he presented himself over on the cross to divine justice, to suffer in your place for your sins. Consider his zeal. It didn't wax, it didn't wane, it never lost steam, it never got weak hanging on the cross. His zeal led him to make atonement for your sins. Consider the zeal of Christ until it provokes your own spirit, his spirit, his zeal that when he had suffered and when he had died rose from the grave. His zeal, the apostle Paul said, in the resurrection that justified you before his father. Consider the zeal of Christ, who even now, with the same zeal for the glory of his father's house and the joy of your soul, continues to plead your cause before the father. Jesus was zealous for the glory of God. Zealous for the souls of men. Zealous for your joy and your good. And he desires for his people to be zealous for him. Listen, I couldn't help but think. We're almost 10 years old. 18 months, give or take, the church will be 10 years old. What if in the next 10 years, we look back and can say of all things that marked redemption Hill? They were a people zealous for the glory of God. Zealous for the souls of the people around them. What if zeal for the glory of God consumed us? What if zeal for the salvation of people consumed us? Friends, we're going to have a chance in just a moment to respond to God's word. I'm going to let you know how we're going to do that. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to give you two minutes. It's going to be silent and in those two minutes we want to give you the opportunity to pray, to deal with God's word, to let him deal with you, to respond to him. This is an opportunity for you to ask him to make you zealous for his glory. Ask him to show you his glory. Ask him to make you insatiable for his glory. If you're If you're not a follower of Christ and you're here this morning, we are so happy that you are here. This is an opportunity for you to ask God to show you his glory, to open up the eyes of your heart, the Bible says, to see his glory in the person of his son. And as you have a chance to pray and a chance to reflect, the musicians will begin to play in a couple of minutes. And for those who are here, you're a follower of Christ, you're going to have a chance to respond again to God's word by receiving communion. And here's the thing, as you get up to receive communion this morning and you come forward, I want you to do it remembering the zeal of Christ, his zeal that never grew weary as his body was broken in your place, his zeal that, that never grew weary as his blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. I want you to receive communion this morning with joy, remembering the zeal of the one who came and died in your place for your sins and ask God to make his zeal for God's glory and your joy, your zeal for God's glory and the joy of others. And as we do that, the musicians will continue to play and then we'll sing. We'll use the mouths that he's given us to to make much of him, to offer him praise. And then we'll be sent out from here to be his people here in this city. So let me pray for us and then we're going to respond together. Father, we thank you so much this morning for your word that not just exposes, but it encourages. God, you gave us new hearts. That was the promise of your gospel. You gave us new hearts, and those new to hearts with your spirit have new desires. God, whatever, whatever in our mind and in our heart is dulling our zeal for you, whatever is taking what is meant to be given to you in our heart, Lord, show it to us this morning that we might confess it, that we might turn from it. God, make us as your people insatiable for your glory and cultivate in us a zeal to see other people in this place, in this city, in this country, in this world, through the work of the gospel, come to know you for who you are. We ask this morning that you would do that in Jesus' name for his glory and for our joy. Amen.